Hello and welcome. Great to have you along as we kick off Season 3 of the Main Question Podcast from UMaine. I'm your host, Ryan Lisnett. So many great stories in different directions that we could go in as the fall 2020 semester revs up. The coronavirus pandemic is, of course, still with us and does have a huge impact on everyone's work and life. The effects of that phenomenon will no doubt be a significant part of the stories we tell in Season 3. But the mission and the work of UMaine as the research institution of the state of Maine continues on as well. And we'll dig into that wealth of material, the challenges and the breakthroughs, and the people who do all of that work throughout Season 3. For this first episode of the season, however, COVID-19 is the major character of this story, as we look at how it affected the beginning of a school year unlike any other. It's hard to forget the mad scramble that befell all of us in mid-March 2020, Literally overnight, businesses and institutions closed their doors, while many folks had to transition to working from home. And of course, schools across Maine and the entire country had to shut down. Students were sent home, teachers had to teach remotely, and parents had to deal with their children being at home. The kitchen table or the living room was now a classroom. What was learned during that scramble last spring? How did school administrators make the transition to remote learning happen? continuing to provide learning opportunities, as well as meals and other things that schools provide while keeping everyone safe. Associate Professor of Educational Leadership Catherine Biddle and Maria Franklin, a lecturer of educational leadership, along with a team of student researchers, did thorough work on how schools handled this transition. They gathered correspondence and information from every school district in Maine and many in Pennsylvania. Their study, Moving Beyond Crisis Schooling, What can we learn from the innovation of Maine districts to support remote student learning from March to June 2020 looked at this seismic shift? How was this crisis handled and communicated? What innovations or common themes emerged from all of this? As the 2021 school year began earlier this fall, we met remotely as Catherine and Maria told us what they found. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Everybody's life has been upended by the pandemic and everything going on in the year 2020. And I imagine that's definitely the case in the world of education with how things ended in the spring and how school is beginning here in the fall. So talk about that sea change and the tectonic plates moving in the world of education and how and why did it lead to this study that you did? Well, Maria, do you want to talk a little bit about what the experience was like on the ground? Sure. So we were working on um, a a set of circumstances that were rapidly changing. Sometimes, uh, several times in one day, a decision would be made and have to be revised and revised again and revised again, particularly around the safety issues of bringing students and staff back to the school buildings. So while decisions were being made at the local district level, um, broader pictures were being evaluated at the state level, and then advice would come down from the state DOE to the school districts, and then the districts would have to communicate those um, decisions to families. And sometimes we were finding that two or three times a day, um, a different decision was made around the same topics. So for example, um, you know, closing the school building. We, we left the school on a Friday thinking that um, we were going to be back on Monday and then we thought we'd be back on Tuesday or Wednesday and then we thought, well, we're not coming back at all until further notice. And so there were just some very rapid fire changes in decision making happening and it certainly um, was challenging at every level um, 
from the district level down to the classroom level and to the family level. So Catherine, how and why did that lead to this study that you put together? Well, I, you know, I had students, so I teach all practicing administrators and teachers, and um, I had students coming to class and saying, this is the most challenging thing I've ever faced in my career. You know, I'm having to make all of these decisions. I don't have the information that I need to make the decisions. And at the same time, there were all of these news articles coming out about how um, schools were adapting to meeting students' basic needs in the context of building closure because there are so many services that students get at the school building and that are really facilitated by the school building being open that all of a sudden were interrupted by this. And so I started to wonder how that was. So my, my lens always is thinking about what's the impact of this on rural schools. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I enjoy working in Maine so much is because, you know, we have so many rural school districts um, in, in varied circumstances. And so um, I started to think, well, how how is this different across urbanicity? How is this different for urban, suburban, and rural schools in terms of how they're adapting to the needs of this moment? And so um, in the midst of all of that, the Spencer Foundation put out a uh, request for proposals for a rapid response research grant that would get reviewed within two to three weeks, and then the funds would be dispersed so that research could be done that would help schools think about what to do in the fall. We put in a proposal, Maria and I, to look at how schools were providing uh, for students' basic needs and communicating with families in the context of um, these rapid changes and uncertain information. How was the study put together? How was it conducted and who was involved? It's a multi-phase study. So the way we constructed is there were some rapid response research questions that um, we uh, were aiming to answer this summer uh, to get timely information back out to districts. And that was, um, I think, one of the reasons that we were awarded the grant was because of the quick turnaround for some information getting back out to stakeholders. That consisted of um, collecting district documentation from websites from every district in Maine and every district in Pennsylvania. And we chose those two states because they're geographically similar, but they had very, very different epidemiological risk at the time that we were collecting the data. Pennsylvania was in the top fifth of states with infections, and Maine was in the bottom fifth of states with infections. And we were wondering if that affected how schools chose to meet students' needs. So that was, so we did this inventory over the summer where we looked at this district documentation um, for every single district in Maine. And then the second phase of the study that we haven't conducted yet is taking that information and using it to do interviews with district administrative teams to really understand the decision-making processes behind the timeline of their, of their supports and the rollout of those to families. Maria, as you alluded to, the transition last March was such a chaotic time. Things were changing literally by the hour sometimes. Was that reflected in the thousands of documents and the feedback that you collected? Yes, I think it was. Um, Certainly we found that districts tried to get information out to families in a timely manner. And sometimes that meant two or three times in one day. And so we did see um, that iterative decision-making process play out in the way that districts were communicating with families to the point that sometimes there was an apology for the frequency of the communications, but it, it was apparent that it was important for families to have as accurate information as possible on a minute-to-minute basis. 
What, if any, common themes or issues or just ways of dealing with this emerged from what you found? Pick a couple of topic areas, environmental, the social, emotional uh, part of the education process, physical factors, any other findings that uh, had some commonalities? One of the things I was surprised by in looking at the documentation is there was actually a lot less variation than I was expecting. I thought that there would be, particularly around, for example, providing food, right? I would say the districts fell into kind of one of two categories. Like every district provided some kind of nutritional support for students, and often they did that within days of closing, um, either within one to maybe I would say at the outer edge, seven days. Uh, of closing, which if you think about the scale of that is kind of amazing. You know, they kind of fell into one of two categories, either repurposing school buses to deliver meals to families' homes or having um, setting up different distribution stations within the community, either at the school or at community sites, um, for families to come and, and pick up. And I know, uh, I know that that was facilitated by the relaxation of guide, the guidelines from the USDA around um, food distribution, um, because that had been a big challenge for districts uh, in, in first looking at this problem. I was really amazed by the ability of districts to adapt so, so, so quickly in the face of, of sudden and unplanned school closure. What was the balance that you found between protecting students and teachers in terms of uh, health and safety and staff and continuing the educational process. I do think that there were efficiencies that districts found along the way. So one example of this in the food distribution realm is there were a lot of districts that initially had uh, deliveries happening every day or pickup sites happening every day. And one of the things that happened in the context of shutdown was, um, or in the, the lockdown mandated by the governor, was districts reevaluating whether they needed to have those pickup and, and, and um, delivery sites happening every day. Um, and so they consolidated those times and distributed more meals less frequently. And that was one way to help protect the staff um, and limit their exposure. Now, Maria, in addition to your duties at UMaine, you are in a school. You're at Narragoygas High School in Harrington, which is in down East Maine. Talk about what you saw on the ground there in terms of that balance, uh, education versus safety and health. I agree with Kat that the response was very rapid for those basic needs, that there was a very quick understanding that there were some fundamental things that had to happen right away. And there was some frustration around waiting for guidance, um, like Kat was saying from the USDA, around what we could do. But there certainly was an immediate recognition of the need to do something. And so we kind of settled into something that worked over time once we got that guidance. I think um, what I noticed um, in the documents we collected was kind of a shift. As we realized how long this shutdown was going to occur, the priorities began to change from um, you know, ma maintaining the rigor of the educational experience toward more of a social, social and emotional learning type of priority where um, mental health and wellness became more foregrounded than it was in the beginning as people realized the impact this was having on families, on students, on teachers and that the shutdown was not going to be temporary, but potentially lasting through the end of the school year. Maria, many schools struck up a partnership with uh, the communities that they're in. Any examples there? Did that happen in your uh, situation? And what kinds of benefits did those relationships yield? We're very fortunate to have some pre-existing um, community partnerships that really stepped in to provide um, not only basic 
supports around food and internet access, utilities, assistance with rent payments, those type of things. But also we have some programs in our building um, specifically through the Maine Seacoast Mission that um, there are several programs that are housed there that stepped in to also support the educational and social emotional needs of our students. So we feel very fortunate down here in Down East Maine to have that partnership in place. And statewide, we noticed that a lot of these partnerships really were foregrounded in the response to the crisis and new partnerships began to be developed as well. So we think that's one of the strong points that um, were highlighted through the documents that we saw coming um, as a result of this project. Catherine, can you maybe talk about the College of Education and Human Development's role in doing research like this and making it available? Is this an example of playing a role in developing and improving education in the state of Maine? Well, as a land-grant institution, um, I think it's our obligation to uh, do applied research that benefits the state of Maine. I know that the way that I approach my work is through the lens of how this will bridge the kind of gap between educational research and, and actual practice in schools. Um, and I think that this project is, is an example of the kind of research that folks are doing all over the college um, in trying to kind of bridge those two things. I know students were involved, uh, some were undergrads involved in the research. What did they get out of the experience? Did they play a key role for you both? Oh my gosh, we couldn't have done this project without the students. You know, we have uh, one graduate research assistant who's actually also um, an assistant principal um, who's in our uh, EDD program in educational leadership. And then we had two fantastic undergraduate student researchers. They bore equal responsibility for the project. You know, we all worked on collecting the documents from websites. We all worked on inventorying the documents. We just split it up. And so they got experience doing... Um, the kind of long payoff uh, hard work that goes into a project like this. You know, we, I, I remember talking to them at the beginning of summer about how research is often a lot about busting rocks before you can kind of get to the main findings. And so I think they got that experience, but also got to see the payoff. Short-term pain for long-term gain, right? Mm-hmm. Maria, how do you hope these findings get used? I think one of the most exciting aspects of this is the ability to connect people who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to learn from one another and learn from their experiences because we did find a lot of commonalities throughout the state. And so through our uh, Beyond Crisis Schooling website and through the webinars that we've done throughout the summer, we've had the opportunity to bring different audiences together and to provide real world examples of things that worked here in the state of Maine for districts. So I, my hope is that it increases a sense of collaboration and provides um, resources for schools who might be looking for answers to specific questions. Now, obviously, schools have been planning since this took place to get ready for the fall, which we're now uh, just seeing the, the school year start in a lot of places. So that has allowed for some planning time for all these school districts to be ready for this. How has that planning uh, and, and implementation of those plans been different from the spring when schools were forced to basically turn on a dime? One big difference is um, that we've been able to plan more intentionally for the return to school. You know, when we entered crisis schooling, we really were making snap decisions because the situation was changing so rapidly. And now the potential for it to change rapidly is always in the back of everyone's mind. But we have kind of settled into this notion of 
a hybrid learning system, a fully in-person system, or a fully remote system, and um, trying to create a system that would allow students to transition seamlessly between those. Um, so I, th I think the intentionality of the process has been greater now, and I think that the experience that we had with having to make decisions during the rapid shutdown and then the crisis schooling um, period of time in, is informing how we approach learning and how we're going to move learning forward for students in this new paradigm of these three modalities that we're, we're using this fall. Catherine, anything to add there or? There are a lot of administrators who are now experts on things that they didn't think that they were going to have to be experts on, right? Like um, the rate at which HVAC systems move air through a particular space or, uh, you know, the, the rationale behind a lot of the CDC guidelines so that they can explain them to stakeholders in their communities. And that expertise had to be developed very quickly. Were there inequities that made themselves known? You talked about uh, nutrition and uh, you know distributing food, internet connections. Did any of that come out of this study? Well, I don't think that our findings at this stage point to particular kinds of inequities. I do think that um, as we get more into the analysis of the inventory that we did over the summer, we're going to start to see some inequities emerge, probably around the, the lines that you would expect. So um, one of the things that we know um, from the spring is that broadband and Wi-Fi access has been just an enormous barrier to remote learning in rural communities and in low-income communities. One of the things that I have said uh, in the past is that I think that the the school closure has disproportionately affected our most disadvantaged students and continues to do so. While I don't know that new inequities are emerging, I think old inequities are emerging in new ways. So of all the changes that have taken place, which, which ones might stick? Maria, you mentioned the fact that schools and teachers need to be prepared for fully in school, hybrid or fully online. So, you know, the, the field is much wider. Will there be any good innovations, do you think, that might come out of this whole situation? For me, one of the most important things to come out of this is the increased communication between district schools and families, um, because families are our partners, and um, they can only be our partners if we provide them with the information that they need in order to help our, our students learn well. So I, I think the increased communication can do nothing but improve um, relationships between families and schools and districts. What advice would you both give to teachers, administrators, parents, students about how to handle all this uncertainty and the challenges ahead? Uh, resilience and patience, I guess, would be two words that come to mind, but what else? I think one of the things that I would certainly tell educators right now who are, I, I, and I've spoken with a lot of them over the last two weeks um, in the context of our classes and also some of my projects, I get the sense that there's just a lot of emotional stress right now about making this a success. And I think at the end of the day, you know, creating an environment where relationships are prioritized and care is at the forefront, you can't go wrong. And I don't think, I mean, I think most educators are aware of that, but within the, figuring out new ways to do that in the context of these guidelines, in the context of physical spaces in our schools that look different and feel different is where our energy should be going before we think about things like achievement and making progress on main learning results and that kind of thing. Maria? Well, I would echo that and I would 
add that in order to successfully do that, we need to pay attention to self-care for the adults in the building because it's stressful for everyone, um, students and families, and they'll be looking to the educators to provide kind of that steady transition and that, that regulated self that's going to allow students to come in and calm themselves and regulate themselves. So the importance of self-care really just can't be stressed enough, I think. Um, do what makes you you know, what recharges your own batteries, what calms your own spirit, and then you'll be better able to help others um, adapt to this new normal as well. Now, this study is not over. Do you both plan on uh, follow-up as far as this project goes? We will be releasing a report in the coming weeks that details some of the findings from the inventory that we did. So the last report that we released focused on um, providing resources to district. This will be more evaluative in the sense of how did districts perform, you know, in, in providing these supports? And we'll be looking at that across a, a couple of different factors. Uh, and then, of course, we'll be looking at how districts made decisions around this and what was prioritized and trying to understand that process. And the goal behind that is, you know, to inform future crisis planning so that uh, schools can be effective in the context of sudden interruptions like this. Well, this is important work, and we're so glad that you took the time to share it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us. We hope you'll consider subscribing to our series. The main question can be found on Apple and Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.